he was able to bring the news that God was coming to tabernacle with man, that salvation was near, that our Messiah would be arriving. Gabriel was trusted with the message of all messages. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Together. Father, thank you for your word. We now ask that you would illuminate this text by your spirit. Encourage us, not only today, but throughout this season, as we're reminded once again the true purpose, the true meaning, the reality of God in the flesh. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate Christ this time of year and every day out of the year. But, Lord, during this special season, we tune our hearts to you and the incarnation, and we thank you for Luke recording these words for us so that we can have certainty. So, Lord, we ask that you would now bless this time as we open your word. In Christ's name, amen. So the book of Luke... We're departing from Romans until the beginning of 2022. In January, we'll get back into Romans. But, but for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Luke. Luke is a discipleship book. If you don't believe me, go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. The writer Luke explains to what he calls the most excellent Theophilus, which sounds like a phrase Bill and Ted would use, the most excellent Theophilus, that he wrote this orderly account of the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth in order... Why did he write it? To bolster Theophilus' faith. Listen to the first four words, or verses rather, of the Gospel of Luke, all written, by the way, in one sentence in the original Greek. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus' name means lover of God. And he needed certainty concerning the person and work of Jesus, which was something he had already been taught about as a believer, but he needed some reinforcing. So Luke writes what he calls an orderly account after research from eyewitnesses, which would have included the disciples, which would have included Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Luke, notice that he's not creating or inventing new material. He was recording what had taken place, and he was now relaying what had taken place. Luke did what all Christians are called to do. Luke, to use the words of the Christmas song we're going to sing at the conclusion of our service today and the theme of our series, Luke just simply did what we're called to do as Christians, repeat the sounding joy. The gospel is to be repeated. The gospel is not a method. The gospel is a message. And it's a message that doesn't need our embellishment and it doesn't need our additional ideas. We don't need to dress it up and make it more palatable, more attractive. We simply need to be faithful to transmit the good news. And what we're going to see in this series in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 over the next few weeks is a series of people, a series of people and angels who repeat the sounding joy, who transmit the glorious good news of the arrival 
of King Jesus, we call this the gospel. And this morning, we're going to see the good news communicated from the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother-to-be of Jesus. Next week, we're going to see Mary and Elizabeth recounting the goodness and glory of God in Mary's life. Then we'll see in a few weeks the parents of John the Baptist, the forerunner, who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And we're going to see Zechariah, his father, blessing the Lord. And we'll see a little bit of that this morning, what happened prior to that. And eventually he'll have the opportunity and the ability to repeat what God had done and was about to do. In a few weeks, when we get to Christmas Eve, we'll see angels proclaiming the incarnation to the shepherds, and then the shepherds sharing the good news of wonder to all who would hear, if you would be willing to listen to shepherds. And then, even after the birth of Jesus, our Savior, we're going to see Simeon, who is a righteous and devout priest, and Anna, the prophetess, both together declaring the redeeming power of the incarnate Christ. So that's where we're going with this series, that we are to continue uh, this idea of repeat the sounding joy. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And today we're going to see the initial announcement of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. And if you're taking note, here's how we're going to break this passage down in three sections. The first section will be the longest, but we're going to see the messenger in verses 26 through 29. We'll see the message through verses 30 and 33. And then at the end, we'll see the miracle and why this is a miracle. So let's first look at Gabriel, the messenger, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We're going to spend a lot of time in this first verse. And we can't move to the next verse without investigating a few things here. The first thing we need to wonder and question is, what does in the sixth month mean? Well, we're not going to do it this morning, but we bypassed verses 5 through 25. But in that text, we read about a priest named Zechariah, and he was married to a woman named Elizabeth. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah walked blameless before the Lord, and they were, uh, how do I say this in a, in, a, uh, in a kind way? I don't know how to say this correctly. That, well, I'll use the phrase the scripture uses. The scripture says that they were advanced in years. They were advanced. I'm going to use that. I like that. I was in a few advanced classes in high school. So we're going to use that. We're going to, we're going to use advanced. I'm not getting older. I know you guys have asked. The gray is coming in. We're going to go with advanced. I'm becoming more advanced in years. Some of you are very advanced in years. And so <laughs> I didn't point any, any fingers. <clears throat> so not only that, not only are they blameless and advanced in years, but Luke tells us in verse 7, if you look there, that Elizabeth was barren. Throughout her years, she was unable to conceive. Her husband, Zechariah, had been chosen by lot to burn incense in the temple. And as he goes to do that, suddenly an angel appears and explains, your barren wife is going to conceive a son. And his name is not to be Zechariah like you would think. No, his name is to be John. And this child, John, would go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And he would fulfill the very last bit of prophetic words that we leave off in the book, the Old Testament book of Malachi, the very closing words of our Old Testament, uh, followed by 400 years or so of silence, are these words, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land 
with a decree of utter destruction. So this news that Zechariah receives in the temple is very surprising to be sure. It's very surprising to the advanced Zechariah. So he asks, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My my wife is also advanced in years. (laughs) It's a thing. And, And so as he says that to God, this is a statement of unbelief. He's saying, there's no way this is possible. He's not saying in a humble way, like, I don't know how you could do this, God, but I trust you can do this. He's saying, this isn't going to happen. I don't believe you. And Zechariah in Luke 1 faces a temporary hindrance, I believe, because he didn't believe the words that were spoken to him. And here's what the angel says in verse 19. You can see it in front of you or on the screen. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you are silent, or you will be silent, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So just to recap, Zechariah comes out of the temple, and the people realize he can't speak. He starts signing. And around this time, his wife Elizabeth conceives. She's pregnant. And for five months, she stays out of sight. So what we read here in Luke 1, 26 is the six-month mark of the advanced Elizabeth's pregnancy. And notice again, the angel, it says in verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. I want to just, uh, on this note about angels, I want to take a minute and let's go through a few notes about angels. So if you're taking note, you can take a picture of these or uh, you can jot these down. But I want us to understand who are angels. Because sometimes when we think of angels, we think, I was touched by an angel, and it's this woman in a long white robe, and she's got blonde hair and blue eyes and wings, and she floats, or they're little cute cherubs that, that are just going around shooting arrows, and so we have these kind of silly ideas, but in the scriptures, we learn that on the screen, angels are created, glorious, worshipful, messenger beings who are higher in the created order than humans are, and there's some verses to jot down. We learn that in the scriptures, angels serve God. They do his bidding, you could say. They dwell with him. And Gabriel says, I'm in the presence of God. So they dwell with him and they worship him. Not only that, but angels are spiritual beings, which may take human form at times to relay messages to humans. Though we know this from the scriptures that they don't procreate. And often they are bright in appearance and they do have in some form the presence of wings and multiple eyes, uh, depending on who's recording. Uh, They sometimes guard and defend believers. They sometimes are given God's wisdom through the church. So we've been given God's wisdom, and the angels long to look into these things. And they're also active in executing God's judgment. However, ostensibly, angels are masculine, appearing as male, with the only named angels being Gabriel and Michael. And the latter, Michael, is a warrior who we can surmise from the text in Daniel um, and in uh, Revelation 12 that he leads the army of heaven. And here's the biggest thing. Angels have not been extended redemption like we have. So we're lower than the angels, and yet Christ was made lower than the angels. And even taking the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So we are in a lower place, and yet God has, through Christ, given us redemption. So this, this angel, Gabriel... Uh, is the same one who interpreted Daniel's vision in Daniel 8. He gave him the 70 weeks prophecy, very famous one, in Daniel 9. And he may have been the unnamed angel in Daniel 7 and 10. 
He's considered an archangel along with Michael. And outside of Scripture, which we wouldn't look to for any sort of um, authority, but in the, can- the non-canonical Jewish writings, they sometimes mention two other archangels, Raphael and Donatello. No, 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 not Donatello. Um, we don't know the name of the fourth archangel, um, but again, we don't base any truth claims from apocryphal writings anyway because they're not the infallible word of God. So what do we know? Well, we know from the text here that the angel Gabriel is an angel. He's sent as a messenger from God. He was entrusted of all angels to bring to bear the greatest news ever brought from heaven to earth. He was able to bring the news that God was coming to tabernacle with man, that salvation was near, that our Messiah would be arriving. Gabriel was trusted with the message of all messages. But notice where he was sent. Did you catch it? Verse 26 told us, to the Galilean city of Nazareth. Now, city is a bit of a, it's a bit of an overstatement. Nazareth is really a town or a village. And in lower Galilee, just north of the Valley of Jezreel, Nazareth sits on top of a ridge that's about 1,600 feet above sea level. It's about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean and about 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth has no major roads that pass through it, so there's no I-75 coming through Nazareth. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament that we're aware of. And so it's not a destination city. It's not a cosmopolitan town where all the movers and shakers reside in. It was large enough to host a synagogue, so there was at least 10 Jewish men there, And it was large enough to boast a copy of the scroll of the book of Isaiah. We learn that later in the book of Luke. But Josephus, who is a a Jewish historian, he mentions 45 different Galilean towns by name, and he never mentions Nazareth. And, And you could just say that Nazareth was like a lot of lower Galilee, uh, South Galilee. It was outside of the mainstream of Jewish life. No wonder Nathaniel, who hears by Philip, that there's this person you need to meet, Jesus of Nazareth. No wonder he says in John 146, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we know the answer, of course, is yes and amen. Yes, the greatest good of all creation uh, the world has ever known uh, came out of Nazareth. Now, uh, if you want to circle the word Nazareth, it is actually important. And I told you we're spending some time on this first verse. But the word Nazareth itself may come from a Hebrew root word, netzer. And that word means branch or root or shoot. Uh, When you chop a tree down, often, invariably, the stump will have a little shoot or a little branch grow up from the stump. And I think that's interesting that that is perhaps where the name Nazareth comes from. Uh, Because the worshipers in the synagogue in Nazareth would often open up the book of Isaiah, the scroll that they had. And invariably, they would have come across Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11, we read these words. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is, of course, a glorious description of our Lord Jesus. Now, still being in the first verse, let's move on to the second verse. Verse 27, it says that Gabriel was sent, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, when we uh, in, are engaged to someone that's a little bit different than betrothal, betrothal lasted around a year. And in some ways, it was the same as being engaged today, except people typically didn't break off their betrothal like people do in their engagements. Uh, this, was, this betrothal was as binding as marriage, and it could only be broken through or dissolved through divorce. So if the man who was betrothed to a woman, they're about to be married, they're betrothed, and he died, the woman would be considered a widow, a widow virgin, as contrary or contradictory as that term sounds. That would be how they'd consider her. So Mary, the virgin, is betrothed to a man named Joseph, and we learn he was of the house of David. Joseph's ancestor was King David himself of the tribe of Judah. But, but beyond this, Luke doesn't provide us anything of note, anything of stature regarding Joseph. He's got a good lineage, but that's all we know about him. So look at verse 28. Look at the message that Gabriel gives Mary, and we'll get into a little more of this. But he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word greetings there is the word rejoice. And when he says, oh, favored one, it has the same root word as greetings. It means to be a recipient of grace. So Gabriel does not say this. He does not say, hail Mary, full of grace. A lot of uh, Catholics would interpret this verse incorrectly. He doesn't bow at her feet in worship. No, Mary isn't full of grace. Mary was filled with God's grace. Do you see the difference? She wasn't the one bestowing grace on others. She was the one, like us, who are recipients of God's grace. So Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. And this is the same address that the angel gave fearful Gideon. And this was a way to assure him, God is going to help you in this big upcoming assignment. And yet notice Mary's response, verse 29. It says, but she was greatly troubled at the same. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Doesn't it seem a little bit disconnected? Sounds like she should be like, thank you. But she's afraid. She's greatly troubled, and she's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Here's what's going through her mind. Why is an angelic being visiting this overlooked town on the outskirts of Galilee, speaking to a lowly girl, a virgin, betrothed to someone you've probably never heard of, announcing Yahweh's favor on her life, like he would to other great men of old who were chosen and empowered by him for a great and impossible task. Her thought is, this is not going to end well. (laughs) This is is a bad omen. This is not a good one. Well, let's move to our second section, the message. What is his true message to her? Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Typically, when an angel says, don't be afraid, the reason is because you're afraid. He's trying to calm your fears. Don't, Mary, don't be afraid, Mary. Why? For you have found favor with God. And behold, pay attention. Look, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. When we look at Zechariah earlier, six months earlier, he had been gripped with fear upon seeing Gabriel. But Mary was more fear, fearful of his words. She wasn't as afraid of the angel as she was the message that he brought. And here, Gabriel reassures her, no, you've found favor with God. Anyone who has not found favor with God, in other words, you've not found favor with God through the work of Jesus Christ, you should stand in fear. 
And yet he reassures her, you found favor with God. And he says, you will conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son and you're to call him Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua for those of you who tend to get a bit particular. Okay, and Joshua, Jesus means saves or God is salvation. And so obviously the name means what the person is going to do. Jesus will be, this child will be the Savior. So look what else what Gabriel goes on to say about Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, I don't know about you, but when we study passages every Christmas, we begin to be be numb to the message. We read Isaiah 9, 6, and unto us a son is given, and government will be on his shoulder. We just, we get numb to what's actually being said because we've heard it so many times. Some of you walk through the grocery store and you'll hear a Christmas song come on and you begin singing it and you don't even realize the words. And then you stop and go, wait, I've never actually realized I'm singing about a red-nosed reindeer, which doesn't even exist. What am I doing? Well, you just, you just get in the habit uh, because it's, it's familiar and it gets, it gets numb to you. So let's not read this with uh, familiarity breeding contempt. Let's read it with fresh eyes. So note with me, verses 32 and 33, the humanity of Jesus. Notice that Mary will conceive in her womb and bear a son. That's the humanity of Jesus. Secondly, his deity. He says, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. Look thirdly at his royalty. He says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Note with me his immortality. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And note with me his supremacy. He says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. When we study Christology, which is the study of Christ, we must make mention of the humanity and the deity of Jesus coexisting. We call this the hypostatic union, the personal union of Jesus's two natures, being truly God and truly man. A lot of people say uh, fully God and fully man, but I like truly God and truly man. Uh, And the deity, the humanity of Jesus coexisting at the same time, how does that happen? I like what Desiring God says uh, on their website. They say, it is immeasurably sweet and awe-inspiring to know that Jesus' two natures are perfectly united in his one person. Jesus is not divided. He's not two people. He's one person. As the Chalcedonian Creed states, his two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Jesus is one. When we study what we call the incarnation, Uh, Daniel Aiken says the incarnation is not a subtraction of deity. It's an addition of sinless humanity. And he says, in this event, the second person of the Trinity truly and genuinely invaded time and space, taking to himself real humanity. Uh, He goes on to say this, the humanity of Jesus was exactly like that of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. For this reason, the truest and most genuine expression of humanity And what it means to be human is made manifest in Jesus Christ. Let's not move too quickly past what the angel is declaring to Mary. This is the the birth announcement of the coming king, the one whose kingdom would have no end. The Old Testament gives us a clear prophetic word about David's throne. And we studied this last year, right before Easter. 
We learned this in, in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this language is synonymous with that passage that we, again, become numb to in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it from that time forward, even forever. From the time that Christ comes, the birth of the king, the son, his, from that time forward, his government, his kingdom will never, ever come to an end. So God promises a house for David that will be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, as we look at this, he is supreme. He is eternal. He is royal. He is truly God. He is truly man. And that's the angelic message for the Virgin Mary. And just think of what that would be like to receive that message. You're betrothed to be married to someone. No one knows you. You're in a small village. You receive that message. What do you do with that? Well, she wasn't the only one who heard this message. You can turn over if you want to Matthew chapter 1, but we'll also put it on the screen. But I want you to jot these verses down. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Mary wasn't the only one to receive this news. It says in Matthew 1, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now thankfully we have Luke's account to give us the backstory there. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, notice how Matthew and the Jews considered betrothal marriage, though it hadn't been consummated yet. Uh, it was con um, uh, Joseph was considered her husband. And it says that he was a just man, and he was unwilling to put her to shame. He had resolved to divorce her quietly. He was going to break off the betrothal because she was pregnant, and he knew that that was not his child. But verse 20 says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So they were betrothed, but not yet married. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's not from a man. This child is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I love how Matthew recounts this back to uh, Isaiah, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, when Joseph woke from sleep, as uh, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew attests to what had happened and what Luke records. And, and Luke would have gotten his information from Mary. So, of course, Mary was a virgin until after their wedding and Jesus' birth. Some people teach and believe in a perpetual virginity of uh, Mary, but we see Jesus had other brothers and sisters in the Gospels, and so we would reject that. But the fact that she is a virgin, that's what makes all of this a miracle. So look at our third section, the miracle. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? This is not a statement of unbelief. How will this be? It's more of a, a genuine inquiry. How? how? How will this be? It's not a statement of unbelief. It's actually a statement of, of great faith. 
Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but not yet married to him. So if she were married to him and they had consummated their marriage, oh, this child you're about to give birth to is going to be great. And the Holy Spirit will overshadow the normal processes of birth. Well, there's no miracle on that. And there's no surprise by that. There's no how will this be. But see, if we look back up at verse 31, we find it's almost identically organized the way Isaiah 7.14 is, which reads this way. In fact, get your eyes on verse 31, and I'll read to you Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is a parallel. This is a, this is a um, fulfillment of prophecy. Some have suggested that we've got this all wrong. They would say, no, 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 no. You Christians have got this all wrong. The, the Hebrew word for virgin always means virgin. And that's not the word that's used in Isaiah 7. But, but you, you see in Isaiah 7 a word that sometimes in context means virgin, but sometimes means young girl. And so you Christians got it all wrong. All Isaiah was saying is a young girl is, is going to get pregnant. That's all that's going to happen. And um, I would say, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. Alma in Hebrew does mean sometimes young girl, but sometimes it means virgin. Um, and the word that Isaiah is using there, I think he was using that word on purpose to, in order to have a dual fulfillment. So there would be a near fulfillment in King Ahaz's lifetime, where there would be a child who was born to a young girl, but there would also be a far fulfillment in Mary's lifetime. And whenever the word behold is used, with the Hebrew present participle, just to nerd out on that for a minute, it always refers to, always refers to a future event. Not just a, a future birth, but a future conception. So one person said, God is promising the house of David cannot be deposed or lose its identity until the, the birth of a virgin-born son. And this requires that he be born before the destruction of the temple uh, and the records of the genealogical records of the temple in 70 AD. So was there a time when a, a virgin claimed to give birth to a son before 70 AD? Is there a time in history where that happened? Well, yes. Um, and what word did Mary use here in verse 34? Did, is she saying, how will this be since I'm a young girl? Well, she could be referring to that fact, but I don't know how that interpretation holds in context. She, she's asking how this is possible because I've never been with a man. And the angel likens it to the barrenness of her cousin Elizabeth. Notice verse 35. The angel answered, here's his answer. How will this be? Well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High, or I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, not the son of Joseph, but the son of God. And then he says, behold, your, your relative Elizabeth in her, well, see, Gabriel doesn't have as much tact. He doesn't say advanced. He just goes for it. Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, church, the miracle is not that a young girl would get married and get pregnant. That happened all the time in Israel. The miracle was that a virgin would conceive just after her advanced cousin, who was barren, had conceived. Pregnancies with young women, that's quite possible. But a virgin or a barren womb conceiving? 
Well, these are impossible unless or until God intervenes. He says, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is the event we call the incarnation. This is not how the Mormons would teach where there's copulation, where the father had some sort of interaction with Mary. No, we learned that Jesus would, verse 35, he'd be called holy, meaning set apart, distinct from all creation. His identity and title would be the Son of God, which is the same as being considered deity. Look up John 5.18 if you don't believe me. Jesus' enemies sought to kill him for blasphemy when he called God his Father. And so that was the same as claiming to be God. Now, how did this incarnation take place? Again, there was not copulation between the Father and Mary. Now, this was the Spirit of God covering Mary In fact, the language of overshadowing and coming upon, that's the language of the cloud of Shekinah glory, uh, the God that we see in the Old Testament who his glory, his presence uh, came into the temple, came into the tabernacle. It, It filled the room. And so this idea is that the presence of God, the cloud of God caused Mary to conceive Christ. We know this as Christians. Jesus was not made He was born. And that's an important distinction, that Jesus is not created. He's uncreated. He is uh, co-eternal with the Father. We read these words, we recite these words from the Apostles' Creed, where we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The incarnation is such a difficult and yet powerful doctrine that sometimes we tiptoe around as Christians, uh, or we just completely ignore it. We, we emphasize the, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the uh, second coming of Jesus, but we don't emph- emphasize the incarnation as much as we do other doctrines within Christology. However, this is an incredibly important doctrine because Anyone who is a false group, a cult group, will challenge the incarnation. If you're gonna, if you're gonna attack Christ, you're gonna go after one of two events. You're gonna either go after his resurrection, or after his uh, virgin conception, his virgin birth. And so, well, the resurrection, we have hundreds and hundreds, dozens and dozens of eyewitnesses. So that one may be a little bit more difficult to discount. So which one would you discount? That or the fact that this was only, his miraculous birth was only witnessed by Mary, Joseph, the starry host, and some simple shepherds. Where do you think doubters set their sights on? So the incarnation, as we, as you just go ahead and look at Time Magazine, go ahead and look online. There's going to be uh, coming up here in this season a lot of questions, a lot of doubt, a lot of skepticism surrounding the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus. But the Apostle John explains, if you are a true Christian, then you will acknowledge the incarnation as reliably true. John said it this way. He said, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Man, we need to listen to that message today. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and they're still coming out. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. By the way, just a side note, whenever you hear Antichrist, a lot of times we put a capital A and we go, who is it? Who's the Antichrist? Well, John is emphasizing a lowercase a. It's the spirit against Christ. And any spirit that can, does not confess Jesus came in the flesh uh, is Antichrist. Okay, let's just get that clear in case you're trying to name any names. So I find it insightful that Jews, that Muslims, that Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, all Mormons, by the way, and Jehovah's Witnesses purport to be under the banner of Christianity. Um, any group that purports that and yet stumbles or fumbles on this truth, we can say they're not um, true Christians. That's what John says in 1 John. But see, what we read about in John chapter 1, verse 14 is the simplest summary of the incarnation. D.A. Carson challenges us to find a better or more succinct way to describe the incarnation uh, other than John 1.14, which is the word became flesh. I mean, I can't think of a more succinct, more punchy way to describe what we believe as Christians, that Christ came as a man. The word became flesh. Just consider this for a minute. The condescension of Jesus Christ, the one who was before all things, the one in whom all things hold together, the one who is uncreated, the one who is truly God, who's truly man. And yet he stoops in humility and he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think of the weight of this message, the miracle of this message that the angel brings Mary. Spurgeon said it this way, he was infinite and yet an infant, eternal yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. You see, the wonder of the incarnation, sometimes we're numb to it because we're just so used to this time of year, but the wonder of the incarnation should strike us and sober us every time we ponder it anew. The way that it struck Joseph and Mary. Remember, Zachariah had seemingly scoffed at Gabriel's words, but look how Mary responds. Look at verse 38. Mary said, behold. The, the angel throughout time has been saying, behold, pay attention. Now she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is what I want to emphasize as we apply this passage of scripture. One main summary application point there will be one for each one of our sermons in this series. And here it is today. Here's just a simple idea. We talk about repeat the sound and joy. The good news, the gospel must be believed and it must be received. You see, Zechariah had been exposed to the good news, hadn't he? He heard it. He was familiar with it. He could write it down and say, I've got a good mental awareness and understanding of what the angel said. I've documented it and I can communicate it. But rather than believing it, receiving it, he scoffed at it. And ironically, not that this is a, a, a prescription for us, but ironically, in his case, his ability to speak, to spread the good news to others was taken from him for a time. Mary, quite, quite the contrary, she believed. She said, let it be to me according to your word. And we'll see more of her posture next week as we study her song in Luke 1. We call it the Magnificat. And we'll be reminded next week that the source of our salvation and the fount of our very lives 
is God. It's not us. So church, before we wrap up today, we must hear the good news, the gospel, that Christ has come, and we must believe and receive it. You see, we go into this time of year, and we've done everything humanly possible, haven't we, to replace the true meaning of Christmas. We've done everything we can possibly do to erase the gift of God in human flesh and replace that good news with some other knockoff. So think about it. Rather than celebrate the gift of God in human form, in human flesh, we celebrate an elderly northerner who breaks into people's homes, who raids their kitchen and leaves stuff in their house that he's had in his bag all year. I mean, have you ever thought about how creepy Santa is? He's making, he's, he sees you when you're sleeping. This guy should be locked up, right? So some people skip Christmas. Others, we're not going to say Merry Christmas. We don't want to offend anyone. Let's just say Happy Holidays. And so we get excited to deck the halls, or we sing about Frosty the Snowman. We're walking in a winter wonderland. A little awkward to sing that one in Florida, but we, we try these ways to skirt around the true message. And I find this quote fascinating in light of where we are today with Christmas. Listen to this quote, not on the screen. This quote says, The majority of Israelites were so caught up with the details of life and their external religiosity that when the signs of Christ's birth were given to the nation, such as the news of the shepherds and the wise men, very few could be concerned because Israel was spiritually bankrupt. It was a time of external religiosity, Pharisaic letterism and formalism, and Sadducean unbelief. The quote says, like much of America today, Israel was caught up with materialism, with human good deeds, and with ritual. There was a form of godliness, but they denied the power. They were practical atheists, living as though God were dead or as though he were non-existent. And so it was into these conditions that Christ was born to deliver us from self-righteous religion, from human philosophy, from materialism, indeed from sin and from all its forms. Such was the hope of Messiah when Jesus came on the scene of human history. See, it isn't enough to give a nod at the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ. Christ has come. We must, you must receive and believe the gospel. You this morning who walk in darkness, repent, turn from your sin, believe the good news, throw yourself fully upon the work of the Son, trust in Christ, not yourself. Turn from your wicked ways, embrace Jesus, whose name alone is given under heaven by which we can be saved. His name alone is salvation. And you have, in your flesh, sought all these ways to save your life. And the scripture says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life this morning for his sake, you'll truly find it. This morning, repent and receive the work of Christ on your behalf. You know, a century before Casting Crowns wrote these lyrics, they actually stole these lyrics and borrowed, you could say, from J. Wilbur Chapman. 1910, he wrote these words. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as can be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever, one day he's coming, O glorious day. As we close church, consider the gospel, the good news, Christ has come. His kingdom has no end. He's with us, Emmanuel. 
And we, like Mary, are also highly favored. Nothing is impossible with God. He who did not spare his own son, but also gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? May we have the same posture as Mary. May we be servants of Yahweh. May we invite God to work in our lives according to his word. Be it unto me according to your word. May others hear the glorious announcement through our lives, through our lips, that the Savior is here. And may others also receive Jesus by faith. May we repeat the sounding joy. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to close in song, singing joy to the world. And it is a joy to know Christ as Savior. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to do that today. I'll be available in the back of the service as you conclude and we dismiss. And if you want today to be that day, we want to pray with you and encourage you in your faith. So let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for sending your dear son, your only son, the son that you love, with God. The word was with God in the beginning. Then the word was God. And yet the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, tabernacling with man. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for what you have accomplished. We thank you for this glorious good news that the Messiah has arrived. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's not professed Christ, but more than professed, who's possessed, who has received Jesus as Lord and Savior, turning from their sin and trusting Christ, Lord, would today be the day of salvation? Would you work anew and afresh in a heart today? And would you give us boldness in our lives and clarity on our lips as we repeat the sounding joy to all who would hear? Lord, give us that ability and that boldness by the Spirit in these days as we look forward to your second advent when you come to conquer all. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We ask now that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.